The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. This episode, we continue our analysis of Alexander the Great. Last episode, we discussed Alexander's earlier life, his ascension to the throne, and his subsequent victory over the Greeks and Illyrians. With his home area secure, he was able to set out on his bigger plan to assume the campaign his father Philip was going to take up against the Persians. Before we start talking about Alexander invading the Persian Empire, let's take some time to talk about what the Persian Empire actually was at this time. By the time Alexander ascended to the Macedonian throne, the Persian Empire was huge and immensely wealthy. In terms of wealth, the Persian Empire probably had 10 times the combined wealth of all the Greek city-states. In terms of area, the empire extended in the northwest to what the Greeks called Asia Minor, which was basically the area of modern-day Turkey. To the southwest was the rich area of Egypt and the Nile Valley. The eastern border at this time was roughly the Indus River, which runs through modern-day China, Pakistan, and India. If you're not familiar with geography, this simple three-point bordered description of the area under the Persian Empire dramatically fails to convey how large the empire was. By this time, the empire was over 2 million square miles and encompassed the area that today are the nations of Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Turkmenistan, Jordan, Israel, Cyprus, as well as parts of Egypt, Afghanistan, Armenia, Pakistan, Kuwait, and Azerbaijan. The empire was ruled by a king who was commonly called the Great King. This king was part of the Achaemenid Empire that had been in control of the empire for two centuries, since the mid-6th century BC. The rulers of the Persian Empire of this period were still of the same Achaemenid dynasty founded in the mid-6th century that had been an existential threat to the Greeks of the first half of the 5th century BC. By the latter half of the 5th century, it was clear that Persia would not be a threat to the Greeks anymore, and Persia's relationship with Greece became complicated. On the one hand, the Greeks were never comfortable with the large Persian Empire looming to the east, especially considering some Greek cities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey again, were still under Persian control. On the other hand, it was extremely common for Greek mercenaries to work for the Persian rulers and various Greek city-states would often carry on diplomatic relations with Persian authorities with the intention of using these relations against other Greek city-states. Likewise, the Persian kings and their satraps, who were sort of dukes or governors, would often interfere in the complex Greek politics that dominated Greece in the 5th and 4th centuries. The Persians knew that a divided Greece was in their best interest and that a united Greece would probably go after Persian territory, especially after the idea was floated by Xenophon in Anabasis, which we discussed a few episodes back. And while the Greeks considered Darius III, the great king ruling the Persian Empire during the time of Alexander, to be honorable and noble, the everyday Greek attitude towards the Persians is more complicated. In fact, by modern standards, they would fit the classic pattern of racism. The Greeks considered anyone that didn't speak the Greek language to be barbarians. The word barbarian probably comes from the Greek word for gibberish, barbar. Think like blah blah. If modern English speakers invented the word, it would be blah blahians. Like any modern racist caricature, the image was self contradictory. 
Greeks simultaneously considered the Persians to be brutish and uncultured, while also calling them effete and soft for customs strange to the Greeks, such as wearing pants. This idea is reinforced over and over through history by Western historians repeating or even amplifying original Western accounts that were racist in the first place. The West is almost always taught history through the lens of the West. The fact that we call it the East is a hint, since that's East of something, and that something is the West. This is an important point that I'm emphasizing, not just because, you know, racism is terrible, but if you want to understand history, it's important to look at history in context, and the only way to truly understand context is to understand it from multiple points of view. History isn't just something that happened to the West. It's a collection of points of view of different cultural groups and different people. It's also important to note because Alexander set a precedent that the East was looked at by the West as something to be conquered. This would be repeated over and over again throughout history, from the Crusades to 18th and 19th century European colonialism to American imperialism in the Middle East today. Of course, I understand there's a bit of hypocrisy on my part in the very fact that I'm doing a podcast series centered on Alexander, while at the same time criticizing the idea of admiring Alexander. And I'd be lying if I said I don't find some small amount of hero worship when I both teach and learn about Alexander. Fierce battles fought against great odds make for fun stories to tell and to listen to. And we'll get to those, I promise. But it's something to keep in mind as we learn about a classic historical example of East pitted against the West. With that said, let's get back to events at hand. Alexander had secured Greece and left it under the care of a trusted general, Antipater. Before his assassination, Alexander's father Philip had already planned a campaign to drive the Persians out of Asia Minor, last time I'm going to say this, modern-day Turkey, and had actually sent his general Parmenio to begin preparations on the Greek side of the Hellespont, which is a modern-day strait of Dardanelles in Turkish Çanakkale. If you look at a map, this makes sense. If you're mounting an expedition from Macedon, this route is relatively direct and minimizes reliance on ships. We're going to hear about the Battle of the Granicus. I should note that there are two somewhat conflicting accounts of the Battle of the Granicus. One is from the most complete biographer of Alexander that we have, Lucius Flavius Arianus, more commonly referred to with the unfortunate shortening of his name, Arian. We have a different account of the battle from the ancient historian Diodorus Siculus. Both were writing hundreds of years after Alexander's death, although their accounts are based on documents they had access to that we unfortunately no longer do have access to. Nevertheless, modern historians tend to side with Arian on disputes between the two, and so the version of the Battle of the Granicus you're going to hear is the one from Arian. Although on occasion, we should learn to read between the lines with Arian, an example of which is upcoming. It's also worth noting that Arian titled his work Anabasis Alexandriae, which means the march up-country or in-country of Alexander, and this no doubt evinced memories of Xenophon's Anabasis. It's also why the name of this series on Alexander is called March Up Country. I'm uh, borrowing from Arian in that regard. In 334 BC, Alexander crossed the Hellespont with a large army of Macedonian, Greek, Thracian, Paeonian, and Illyrian soldiers. 
By this time, the Persian satraps of Asia Minor had organized a large army in the town of Zalia and hoped to deploy it in a way that could easily defend against an attack by the Macedonians. We are told that there was a Greek consultant advising them named Memnon of Rhodes. He suggested that the Persian satraps burn their fields to prevent Alexander from being able to maintain sustenance on the march. The satraps refused to do this for understandable reasons. For one, this was their source of income and burning the fields was burning their own income. For another, they were still answering to the great king, and at this point, no Persian army had encountered the Macedonians, much less a Macedonian army under a military genius like Alexander. It would be hard for them to justify to the great king that they burned all their fields when the threat was wholly unknown to them at that point. And so the Persian army marched to the eastern banks of the Granicus River, the modern-day Biga River, Biga Chai in Turkish, forgive my pronunciation. Upon learning about this large Persian army at his rear, Alexander marched his army a hundred kilometers back north to meet the challenge. He did this because having an army at his rear would cause obvious difficulties in his plans to take cities back on Asia Minor. Plus, Alexander knew he was dangerous in a set-piece battle and saw this as an opportunity to take out a threat early on. The Persians set up on one side of the river with cavalry in front and waited. The Persians had hoped that Alexander's army would lose some of its integrity after the march, an assumption that was not without merit. Maintaining formation and army integrity was tremendously difficult, especially with the technology available to the ancients, especially when one considers that Alexander was in enemy territory and half of his army was composed of soldiers from cultures he had conquered. It's easy to see why the Persians expected his army to fall apart before it would provide any threat. A large part of the Persian army was cavalry, horse-mounted soldiers. The Persian cavalry were what would be considered light cavalry. They were not heavily armored and used slings and javelins to quickly attack an enemy and then move out of range. What's important to remember is that these cavalry were not intended for close, hand-to-hand -hand melee combat. There were about 20,000 of such cavalry. When the Persians deployed, the cavalry lined up in about a three-kilometer line, roughly north-south, along the tops of the riverbanks on the east side. The rest of the Persian army was about ten to 20,000 Greek mercenary foot soldiers, infantry. These soldiers stayed behind the cavalry on a hill and didn't expect to see much fighting, so the Persian army in total was around thirty to 35,000 in size. Furthermore, while the Persians were outnumbered, Alexander's army numbered about 35 to 40,000. The Persians had a significant strategic advantage. Alexander had to cross the river. Any attempt to cross the river and the Persians could take advantage and strike Alexander's men who would be slowed down in the crossing. Even worse for Alexander, the riverbanks were high and sloped. After crossing a river, Alexander would literally have an uphill battle. Ancient historians were hard on the Persians for this strategy, but the fact is that it was a solid strategy. The problem is that Alexander could look at an enemy deployment and immediately think up a counter to the deployment on the fly. The first surprise to the Persians was that Alexander deployed his army directly from the march into battle formation. A large army was difficult to keep organized and disciplined in the ancient world, so for an army to deploy in a perfect formation after a 100-kilometer march was probably shocking to the Persian army. Now we come up on one of those examples from Arian in which we should read between the lines. 
Arian tells us that Alexander's general Parmenio advised that Alexander wait until the next day to cross the river upstream and attack. Alexander chose to attack immediately against Parmenio's advice. I bring this up because Arian seems to have chosen Parmenio as a kind of foil or counter-character, representative of the older, more cautious generation of generals, in contrast to the younger Alexander's more bold strategies. This theme of Parmenio advising a more cautious approach to battle shows up again and again in Arian's account. To be clear, no historical accounts doubt Parmenio's loyalty to Alexander, and this might not be true in the first place. Arian was writing hundreds of years after Alexander's death. But it's worth mentioning, especially as Parmenio would pay for his loyalty with Alexander's murder of both him and his son. But that's something for a later episode. Alexander set up his cavalry on his flanks and foot soldiers in the middle of the formation. Parmenio was on the Macedonian left flank, controlling Thracian and Thessalian cavalry. Alexander was on the right with the companion cavalry, who you may remember was a highly trained group of heavy cavalry soldiers who ate and lived and rode with Alexander. In contrast with the Persian cavalry, most of Alexander's cavalry were heavy cavalry. These were heavily armored soldiers with lances. The whole point of these soldiers was to charge and break an enemy formation. Furthermore, these cavalry were equipped and trained to fight in hand-to-hand -hand melee battles, unlike the Persian light cavalry. The battle was begun with a feint, or fake-out, by Parmenio on the Macedonian left with cavalry and light infantry. The Persians moved a large amount of troops to their right to reinforce this side, and Parmenio's maneuver was pushed back. But keep in mind, the Macedonians always stayed organized, and even though they were pushed back, this was not a big problem. It was an organized retreat. Had they not maintained their organization, the long Persian line could have crossed and wrapped around behind Alexander's army. Second, the Persians reinforcing their right came at the cost of the Persian center and left. As this happened, Alexander charged with the companion cavalry into the Persian center. The Persians responded with a cavalry charge by the highest-ranking Persian nobles, and heavy fighting ensued. The entire campaign almost ended here. We are told that a Persian nobleman named Roisakes clubbed Alexander in the head, denting his helmet and stunning him. A second Persian nobleman named Spithridates was about to slash at Alexander when a cavalry commander named Clytus the Black cut Spithridates' arm off. After fierce fighting, the Macedonians eventually gained the upper hand. The cavalry charged by the Persian noblemen proved to be not only a tactical mistake, most of the Persian leadership on the battlefield was now dead, but a strategic mistake, as it meant most of the Persian leadership in Asia Minor itself was wiped out in one fight. There was also now a hole in the middle of the Persian line that the Macedonian infantry poured into. And with this, the Persian line collapsed and fled, with many being slaughtered as they tried to flee. This all happened very quickly, probably on the order of minutes. You may remember that there was still a Greek mercenary force working for the Persians waiting on a hill behind the Persian line. With the main Persian army and cavalry driven off the field, the Greek mercenaries were quickly surrounded. Seeing they had obviously lost the battle, and being just paid mercenaries that didn't have a strong reason to fight, the Greek mercenaries offered to surrender and join Alexander's army as mercenaries for Alexander. Alexander responded by having most of them killed or sent into a life of slavery. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat or justify this. It's brutal and it's awful. 
However, I will try to explain why Alexander would do this instead of what would seem to be the obvious choice of supplementing his army with a few thousand strong Greek mercenaries. And the reason is pretty simple. At this point, Alexander was just beginning the campaign against the Persians. He had won one fight, and while it had been a crushing victory, he had not encountered the great King Darius himself yet, nor had he encountered the bulk of the Persian armies. He had quite recently pacified the Greeks, and was far from certain that he could maintain Greek allegiance. Alexander felt he had to send a message, and that message was, you do not work for the Persian king. If you do, you will die. He would actually loosen up on this within a year and eventually recruit Greek combatants, but for whatever reason, he felt the need to send this initial gruesome message. So the battle was over, and from a strategic standpoint, it was stunning. Almost all of the Persian leadership in Asia Minor had fought at and been killed at the Battle of the Granicus. It was May 334 BC, and he had little opposition in Asia Minor at this point, and was able to spend the next year taking cities on Asia Minor. This was generally pretty easy, as a lot of these cities were still Greek cities under Persian control, and Alexander positioned himself as a liberator. Actually, this is a good time to talk about Alexander's propaganda campaign. Alexander understood the importance of winning important military battles, but also the importance of winning hearts and minds, and he did this in multiple ways. For example, as I just mentioned, positioning himself as a liberator of the Greek cities of Asia Minor certainly was more easy to swallow than him coming in strictly as a conqueror. He brought writers chronicling his exploits, no doubt written in a way favorable to him, as well as recording what they saw. He had cartographers mapping the areas they traveled through, and had samples of flora and fauna he came across in his travels sent back to his old tutor, who you may remember was the great Western philosopher Aristotle. But he also had a talent for using religion to advance his prestige. After the Battle of the Granicus, he had 300 Persian suits of armor sent to the Parthenon in Athens as an offering to the goddess Athena, with an inscription above them that said, Alexander, son of Philip, and the Greeks, except of Lacedaemonians, present this offering of spoils taken from the barbarians who live in Asia. That little dig at the Lacedaemonians was directed at the Spartans, who had refused to bow under Alexander like the rest of the Greeks, but that effectively left them isolated in their own area. And sending gifts as offering to the gods wasn't the only way he manipulated religion to his own benefits. From birth, he was associated with mythically heroic ancestry. His father claimed to be descended from the mythical Heracles, and his mother claimed descendancy of the hero from the Trojan War, Achilles. As Alexander went through his travels, he would make a point to go through rituals that would cement his legendary status, and eventually to reinforce his self-proclaimed divinity. Simply put, Alexander would eventually think of himself as a god. We'll get into more detail about that in a future episode, but for now I want to give an example of him building his legend. Whether it's true or not is not the point. The point is that Alexander had this story passed as an example of his being a part of a legend. The story takes place in the city of Gordium in 333 BC. Gordium was located in Central Asia Minor, and according to the legend, there was an ox yoke in the center of town that had some kind of a knot that was impossible to untie. Much like the King Arthur legend of the sword and the stone, the tradition said that whoever would break the knot would be the future king of Asia, the ancient's term for pretty much anything east of Greece. Alexander took his sword, 
cut the knot in half, thereby breaking it, and fulfilled the legend. This may not have been the most auspicious achievement. Even taken at face value, he did little more than just cut a rope with a sword. But what Alexander was doing was trying to integrate himself into legend, both local and more widespread. At any rate, after the Battle of the Granicus, Alexander took cities throughout Asia Minor. While he had taken out most of the Persian leadership, he still saw opposition from the aforementioned Greek advisor Memnon of Rhodes. Memnon eventually died, and Alexander would be in control of pretty much all of Asia Minor by mid-333 BC. Of course, the Persian king Darius had heard the results of the Granicus and began amassing his army. On November 5, 333 BC, the two armies would meet. And that, listeners, is a story for the next episode. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.